Well, good morning, everybody. Good morning. Welcome. Thanks for taking the time to join us this morning. My name's Aaron. Uh, I've been here for a few months now, and just really excited to get the opportunity to open up the scriptures with you uh, once again. We're going to be continuing in our series through the gospel according to John. Uh, so if you have your copy of the scriptures, I invite you to turn there. We're looking at just a short little section, actually, within the gospel of John here in John 11. Just a few short verses. It actually has one of the shortest verses in the scriptures, Jesus wept. But before I get into that, if you are in kids ministry and would like to hang out with other kids, Dan and Jessica are in the back. Feel free to join them. They're up with their hands there. And then we'll just continue along here uh, looking at the gospel of John. Um, But we're going to be looking at, again, just a short section here with one of the shortest verses in the scriptures, Jesus wept. And even though this section is short, I think there's a lot of really powerful and important things, important truths related to grief, related to suffering, related to pain in our lives, and how that intersects with our apprenticeship with Jesus. So in light of that, I say that because I realize that most of us in this room have gone through a lot of difficulty in our lives. And many of you have gone through maybe perhaps more difficulty than I have and have probably far more experience. And you probably should be up here giving this teaching as you'd have so much more wisdom and so much more insight uh, to offer. And I say that just hopefully because that this time can still be helpful as we open up God's word, as we seek to learn from him and his spirit and what he has to say for us that this time can really speak into our hearts in our lives today. Because just think about this idea of grief, of suffering, and pain. How do we even process that? Like, how do we even work through grief and, and hardship in our lives? I find that oftentimes in our, in our culture, as Westerners, that there's usually one of two main ways that we often want to deal with grief and pain. On the first way that I'll talk about is this idea of just kind of this blind optimism that essentially just wants to ignore pain, that wants to ignore suffering, that just wants to put on the happy face, put on the tough face, and pretend like it's not really there. Just move on with life, not think about it, not deal with it. You know, just put a smile on and everything will be okay if I don't have to think about it. You know, that's kind of one way I think sometimes we gravitate as far as how to process pain and difficulty. But the other extreme is kind of the exact opposite, just sort of wallowing in our pain wallowing in our difficulty, kind of letting it define us, letting it consume us. It's kind of uh, playing the perpetual Eeyore card, you know, the woe is me sort of a thing, and just letting our, you know, pain and suffering define us and consume us. But my hope and prayer is that as we look at this text in John 11, that we see Jesus inviting us into, let's just call it a third way forward, a way that doesn't ignore pain and suffering, but a way that it doesn't let it consume and define everything about us as well. And so with that kind of in the back of our heads, let's look at the text here in John 11, starting uh, in verse 29. We pick up our story. Last week, Jesus was mainly interacting with one of the two sisters, Martha, who had just lost their brother Lazarus to death. This week, the, the scene uh, shifts a little bit, and we begin to focus on the other sister, Mary, in Jesus' interaction with Mary. We pick up in verse 29. Or we read this. Mary got up quickly and went to him, that being Jesus. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who had been there with Mary in the house, comforting her, noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, 
supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there as well. So Mary quickly goes out to meet Jesus, but there's a curious detail here in verse 31. It's not only Mary that's going out to meet Jesus. There's this group of Jews in verse 31 that are are essentially following Mary along. Now, this group of Jews gives us insight into kind of this profound way that the Jewish people in the first century dealt with and processed suffering and pain. This group of Jews that have been comforting Mary and the family that is following Mary now in this scene would have more than likely been professional mourners. Essentially a group of people that were hired by the family after this tragedy to simply just sit there and be with them, to cry and to weep and to just be present with them. Now, I know that kind of sounds strange to us, like we don't do things like that in our day, but this really gets at the fabric and the DNA of what it meant to be a first century Jew and how they processed pain and suffering. Because from the very beginning of the Jewish story, back in what we call the Old Testament, in the Hebrew Bible, in the book of Genesis, from the very beginning of Israel's history, Israel was a people that struggled, that had pain, that had difficulty in their lives. In the book of Genesis, where we first come across the name Israel. Israel, we're told, means one who struggles with God. And so the people of Israel from the very beginning were a people that struggled, were, the, were a people that had hardship in their lives. And as the story of Israel continues throughout the Old Testament, Israel finds themselves in the book of Exodus in a state of slavery. In Exodus 3, we're told that Israel is groaning, crying out to God because they're in this state of oppression, this state of slavery under the evil Pharaoh. And what does God do, though? What does God do in Israel's moment of pain and hurt and difficulty? Well, God, the one true creator God, is faithful to meet his people where they're at and bring deliverance and to come and rescue and redeem his people. And that pattern essentially continues throughout the Old Testament. Whether it's Israel's own folly and own kind of silly decisions of going their own way or things from the outside coming in to take and and harm Israel. God is consistently faithful to meet his people where they're at and to rescue and bring redemption. Even till the point where as Israel finds themselves in a state of exile at the end of the Old Testament. Because of their own folly, because of their own going their own way. The hope that Israel's prophets foretold was of a day when God would come back again. When God would come back in his fullness, set up his kingdom on earth, and establish new creation, and God would get rid of all of the suffering, all of the pain, all of the death, all of the injustice that plagues his good world. And Israel looked forward to this day. The prophets foretold of this day, and they looked forward to it. To the point where in the first century, at the time of Mary and Martha, in this scene here in John 11, they understood this. The reality of, yes, the brokenness of our world on one hand, yet the prophetic hope that Israel's prophets talked about on the the other. And this tension, the both and of, yes, the reality of pain in our world and the prophetic hope, allowed Israel to be an honest people. Allowed Israel to come to God with all of their brokenness, all of their hurt, all of their angst, and to still cry out to God. Just think of the Psalms. Think of the Psalms, 150 uh, Psalms and prayers and poems of ancient Jewish writing of singing and crying out to God where at least a third of the Psalms would be considered lament Psalms. Psalms that speak to the despair and the angst of our world. Think of some of the more famous lines in the book of Psalms. Psalm 13. How long, O Lord? How long, O Lord? Have you ever thought or even said that before God before? How long is this going to stay? How long is this going to happen? Or Psalm 22, the one that Jesus echoes from the cross as he's being crucified. 
My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Or why have you abandoned me? As some translations put it. Or Psalm 88, which I think is probably one of the more depressing psalms in all of Scripture. The last line of that psalm says, darkness is my only friend. I mean, these are in our Bibles. This isn't stuff that God edited out. No, these are in our Bibles. These are millennia of of ancient prayers and poems that have been prayed to God in the midst of hardship and difficulty. And they give us language today in our pain, in our moments, to come to God with honesty and with vulnerability. And the thing is, is that, that the Jewish people understood this. They understood the tension of naming and calling pain for what it is, and yet still crying out to God in hope. I love what one writer says, one commentator says about these psalms, and kind of gives some, some wordage to what, what's actually going on here. Derek Kidner, a commentator on the psalm, says this. The very presence of such prayers, referring to some of these psalms in Scripture, is a witness to God's understanding of man. For God knows how we speak when we are desperate. God knows how we speak when we are desperate. God's not put off by our our vulnerabilities. God's not put off by our coming to him and lament. No, God understands humanity's state and welcomes it and embraces us as we are. To the point where even in our story in John 11, Mary herself is desperate. Mary herself is desperate. We pick up in verse 32 where Mary falls at his feet, Jesus' feet, and says, Lord, if you would have been here, my brother would not have died. Something very similar to what her sister Martha said last week. Verse 33, when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews, those, the mor- ones that are mourning with Mary, had come along with her also weeping, Jesus was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? Jesus asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Now, just hanging with me with this next part. There's a little bit of textual work we want to do because how Jesus is described here as, as being deeply moved in spirit and in trouble, most of our English translations will have something like that in this little paragraph here. Jesus being deeply moved in spirit and in trouble. Well, that, that's okay. That, that's great. But you, if you look closely, even in your own Bibles, you probably have a footnote that indicates that this translation is a little kind of, kind of weak, perhaps, that what's really going on here is not that Jesus is just kind of slightly bothered or slightly irritated or he kind of like got a paper cut or something and is, you know, you know, not having it or having a good day. No, what's really happening with Jesus's emotions here is that there's this kind of deep anger that's just kind of growing in within him. There's this deep emotional response that's happening, that he's deeply sorrowful, deeply full of anguish, deeply full of hurt as he's coming to to, to the tomb of his friend Lazarus. You know, one of the more helpful translations that I came across, where virtually every commentator will, will make this argument, where Jesus is kind of growing with anger within him, this frustration within him. But one of the best ones I came across was Eugene Peterson's translation, where he writes this. That Jesus had a deep anger welling up within him. Just kind of think about that. This deep anger welling up within him. Just imagine being there. Here's Jesus. He's approaching the tomb of his friend. A friend who the text before and later on in this chapter will say, Jesus deeply loves. And as he's approaching the tomb of his friend Lazarus, this deep anger is welling up within him. And the question becomes, why? Like, what's Jesus angry at? Why is Jesus angry? Like, what's happening here? And again, think about who Jesus is. 
He comes in the long line of, of traditions as far as the Jewish people are concerned. And he understands the Jewish story. He understands that death is not part of God's ultimate design and God's ultimate will. That one day death would be no more. He understood what the prophet Isaiah talked about in Isaiah 26. Where in the new creation where all God's people are gathered together feasting on the best of meats and the choices of wines. There is going to be no more death. In fact, Isaiah 26 foretells of a day where God would swallow up death itself. See, for the Hebrew prophets and for Jesus and the writers of the New Testament, death is an enemy. Death is an intrusion into God's good world. It's not part of his ultimate design, part of his ultimate will. So the response of anger on the part of Jesus, it's a fitting response. Because in Jesus' mind, death is an enemy. It's not meant to be part of God's good creation. And so Jesus, yes, he approaches the tomb with a little bit of anger welling up within him. But he also approaches the tomb with this tender compassion, with this tender weeping. Look at verse 35, the, the kind of the more famous verse in this section. Just two words in English. Jesus wept. Jesus wept. One of the shortest verses in scripture. And it can be easy to just kind of skip along at this point and just go, okay, let's move on to the next part of the story. But again, pause and think about what's, what the text is saying. Think about what's happening here. Here's Jesus of Nazareth. The, the, the one who the gospel according to John has declared to be the word of God made flesh. That is tabernacled among us. Jesus, the one who's turned water into wine, performed miracle after miracle, who's claimed to be the bread of life, the the spring of living water, the good shepherd. Here is Jesus, the embodiment of the one true creator God. And what is he doing at this moment at at the tomb of his friend? He's weeping. The creator of the universe is weeping at the tomb of his friend alongside Mary and Martha. And just think about what that says about who our God is. That our God is not distant. Our God is not far off. Our God does not remove himself from the pain, but our God enters into the pain, enters into the brokenness. I love what N.T. Wright says about this passage. One of my favorite New Testament scholars, he writes this. When we look at Jesus, not least when we look at Jesus in tears, we are seeing not just a flesh and blood human being, but the word made flesh, a reference back to John 1. The word through whom the worlds were made weeps like a baby at the grave of his friend. Only when we stop and ponder this will we understand the full mystery of John's gospel. Only when we put away our high and dry pictures of who God is and replace them with pictures with which the word who is God can cry with the world's crying will we discover what the word God really means. I love that. Only when we put away kind of those images of God who's distant, who doesn't relate, And understand that this is who God is relating to us, embracing us in our brokenness. Will we then begin to understand who God truly is? Only when we stop and ponder this. You know, for the rest of our time today, I just want to do exactly that. Just stop and ponder. Stop and think about what this text is saying. What this short passage is saying. Like, what does this have to do with us as we follow Jesus in the 21st century? As we seek to follow him, as we seek to be faithful to him in our lives, what does this passage about Jesus weeping, Jesus mourning, have to say to us in our moment? Now, by, by no stretch of the imagination do I think I have this remotely figured out. Like, processing pain, processing difficulty is still something that I'm constantly working through in real time. 
And so as we kind of look into some of this, the practical side of this, the, may, may you just take this as maybe some suggestions that I found helpful in my own journey that maybe could be helpful for you as well. And kind of how I just wanted to organize this was under kind of two main sections. The first one dealing with this idea of grieving deeply. Another way of putting that would just be honest grieving. That's real and honest. Not like, you know, just I mentioned before the blind optimism of our culture that wants to just look past the pain or look or ignore the pain and just move on to the next thing. No, Jesus clearly challenges that in our text. What does Jesus do at the, at the graveside of his friend? He weeps. He doesn't pretend like everything's okay when it's not okay. He doesn't give a pat answer and, you know, move on to the next thing. No, Jesus takes the moment to weep. You know, if I'm being completely honest, I think that for the most part, and this is a general statement, so kind of take it for what it is, but I think for the most part in the American church, Christians have a hard time actually processing grief and lament. There's not really a category for that. We just want to put on the happy face and pretend like everything's okay when really there's a lot of hurt that's going on. You know, oftentimes we want to pull out the Romans 8.28 card and just kind of quote, you know, God works all things together for good. And just kind of slap that verse onto any and all situations and then boom, right? The problem's supposed to be fixed. But we forget, we forget that Romans 8.28 is just a few lines after where Paul just said in Romans 8, all of creation is groaning. All of creation is longing for the complete and full redemption of God. And that's Exodus language, by the way. That's language that echoes the Exodus story of oppression and pain and suffering. Or we often want to pull out the Lamentations 3 line, right? His mercies are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. Yes and amen, for sure. But that's like the only like, positive verse in that entire book, by the way, right? That whole book is so depressing. It's not like, you know, quick tidbits for your best life now. It's Jewish lament and mourning. And we forget that this, is it, this stuff is in our Bibles, and I guess, to, just to be you know, frank and honest, one of the reasons why I'm so passionate about this is in large part due to, to our, our own story, my wife and I's own story. We've been married for about, supposed to get farther along before. <laughs> We've been married for about five and a half years, my wife and I, Cheyenne. And at the time, we were essentially just living the dream when we were first newly married. You know, I was working a dream job at the church I grew up in. We were financially stable. We were about to buy a home. We soon became pregnant right after we got got married, and we were just excited and stoked. You know, everything was just going well for us. But in about five months into, about five months into our, our Cheyenne's pregnancy, our we, had, we were having a baby boy, Ryler. Shine went into preterm labor. And essentially, she, we, she went to labor early at five months. And I still remember that night, Sunday evening, the youth group was at our house, and we rushed through the hospital as fast as we could. But long story short, we would be too late. And that evening, Ryler would, would pass away during delivery. And... And just the shock of that. Up until that point in my life, things were super easy. And just the shock of that whole event, that night, 
with uh, our family and close friends. You know, we'll never forget just holding our boy together those few moments. And the reality was, was it wasn't just that night, but the days and the weeks and the months were the darkest times of our lives. Just, we didn't know what to do. We were 23 at the time. We didn't know how to grieve. We didn't know what that was, what that looks like, what that is and what that isn't. And to be honest, we weren't really even given the space to grieve. We were at the time working at a church, and there was kind of this expectation. You're a church leader. You're supposed to, you know, have faith, be strong, be an example, not question, not doubt, those sorts of things. But to be honest, I had tons of doubts, tons of questions, tons of just emotion and anger, to be honest. And we could barely sit through church gatherings. We would, off, we would multiple times just got up and left. You know, and it was so hard to sing songs about, you know, God being faithful and God being good and God never failing us because it felt, didn't feel like that. It didn't feel like God had, it felt like God had failed us. I know that's not a right thing to say, but that's what it felt like in those moments. And to be honest, God had to take us on a really long journey of, of grieving honestly and of grieving deeply. But what does that even look like? What does that even look like to to grieve honestly and to grieve deeply. And again, by no means do I have or think I have all the answers, but here's just a few kind of practical things that helped us along our journey that maybe would be helpful for you as well. And again, just kind of take it for what it is, but these are things that helped us along in our journey. And the first one that I just want to talk about kind of under this big idea of grieving honestly is not ignoring our emotions. Not ignoring our emotions. I think sometimes in Christian subculture, there's this like cliche of, you know, you know, don't or ignore your emotions. Don't trust your emotions because emotions are unreliable. Just trust scripture. And there's kind of that, that kind of saying, if you will, at times. And I get where that's coming from. I get where there's kind of the half truth in that. But at the same time, emotions can and are powerful indicators of what's really going on at the depths of our hearts. You know, think of our lives as like an iceberg. You know, like 10% of it is like up on the surface and like 90% is below the water. Emotions can be powerful indicators getting at what's really below the surface. And if we just ignore emotions, then you know what? We miss out, I think, on the opportunity to see healing in our lives. You know, think about our text again. What does Jesus do at the gravesite of his friend? He what? He what? He weeps. He doesn't ignore his emotions. He doesn't ignore the pain. You know, this isn't the only time that Jesus does this too. When his friend John the Baptizer passes away, elsewhere in the Gospels, those accounts will tell you that Jesus would go to a lonely or desolate place to pray with his father, to process and to grieve and to think about what happened. Is it just like keep moving on, pretending like everything's okay when it's not okay? That he takes time to process. He takes time to, to face the pain and the suffering. You know, I was talking recently with a trained therapist who even mentions that on a, on a biological and physiological level, there's something healthy that happens when we actually cry, when we actually weep. That there's some, some I don't pretend to understand the science behind it all, but there's something physiological, that, that healthy, that happens to us as we kind of shed some tears and allow that process to happen in our own bodies. One of my favorite authors, Pete Scazzaro, he wrote this short little book called Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. And it was a book that was really helpful for us kind of later on in our journey. He talks about in this book about how when people don't process their emotions, they inevitably will leak their emotions. Kind of in sort of passive-aggressive behavior. Kind of in like this low-grade like resentment or bitterness. 
kind of coming out in like sarcastic comments here and there. But the freedom and the opportunity to come to God with all of our anxiety, all of our emotions, is an opportunity for the Spirit of God to bring healing in our lives. Not to push past it, but to face that and to be honest about that with God and with others. So that's kind of the first kind of subpoint. The second one that I want to mention has to do with just simply listening. Listening both to other people's stories and, listen, and being listened to. See, for us, in our journey, you know, hearing other people's stories of suffering and pain and hurt really kind of gave us a sense of belonging, that we weren't the only ones. You know, it was really easy for me just to think, okay, this is, you know, my life sucks. I'm the only one who has something bad that's happened to me and just kind of wallow in that. But hearing other people's stories kind of gave a little bit of perspective. That there's other people that have gone through difficulty in life too. And that God has been faithful in their journey as well. And on, at the same time, being listened to, hearing, letting, hear, letting other people in our lives that took the time to just sit with us, to listen to me essentially just vomit whatever was in my heart and head, and to not try to fix me, but to just be there present, that was such a gift. You know, sometimes I think we want to, it comes usually from a good place of wanting to try to help and fix right away. But oftentimes what people need is just someone to be there present, to listen, to just sit there with them. And that was such a gift in our journey. And the last thing I just want to mention along these lines is just this idea that helped me a lot was reading. And it sounds kind of weird. It kind of just reveals a little bit of my own weirdness. But after this whole event happened, I had so many questions, so many doubts, so many things that were just confusing about God and evil and suffering and kind of how does that all fit together? And by no means, again, do I have that one figured out at all? The God and evil suffering question is, I think, going to be just a perpetual question in, in, in my life. But one thing I know for sure, God is good, evil is evil, and God is never the author of evil. And just being able to read other thinkers and theologians, you know, Tim Keller's little book, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering. His brilliant mind just resonates throughout the book, but his pastoral heart is is so there throughout that little book. And that book was so helpful for me along in our journey as well. But it wasn't just reading like other theologians and other thinkers. It was actually really rereading the Gospels again. Reading Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John over and over and over again and seeing the beauty of Jesus and thinking about how he interacted with evil and pain and disease and suffering in the world in his day. You know, Jesus never gives like a pat answer and say like, oh, that's just like God's will or something. Just trust God and move on to the next thing. No, what does Jesus do every single time he sees healing and sickness in the gospel stories? He seeks to heal. He pushes back the darkness. The light is invading the darkness, and the darkness cannot overcome it. And to see Jesus consistently doing that, meeting people with his compassion and with his power, and entering into that pain, entering into that brokenness, I'm telling you, Jesus is is more compelling than he has ever been in my life. And to see him allow death seemingly defeat him on the cross, but rising victoriously, and seeing that again with fresh eyes was so life-giving for me. You know, I guess all that to say, all I'm trying to say is that if you're here this morning and there's pain and there's disappointment and there's difficulty in your life, my invitation, God's invitation, is to come to him with that. To be honest about that. To see that God's, God is, is there waiting. The Spirit wants to bring healing to your life. Later on in the Gospel of John, the Spirit is described as our comforter. 
And the Spirit wants to bring comfort into your life this morning with, as you come to him with honesty and with openness. And the thing is, if we, if we just kind of want to ignore that pain, ignore that hurt, we often will miss out on the healing that the Spirit wants to bring in our lives. You know, one author, I think, really put it best. His name's Jerry Sitzer, and he wrote this short little book called The Grace Disguise, where he kind of talks about the loss of his, 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 mo- his mother, his wife, and his daughter. It's a short little book, but he talks about this, the reality of actually facing the pain and facing the difficulty, and he says this. The quickest way to reach the sun in the light of day is not to run west chasing after it, like just kind of running after the good things, but to head east into the darkness until you finally reach the sunrise. His point is that as we intentionally face the pain and face the reality, it's then we begin to see the light of God, the goodness of God in those moments. The light has shone and the darkness cannot overcome it. And I realize that there's many of us in this room today with a bunch of different stories, a bunch of different things in our past. And again, I just cannot highly encourage you enough that the Spirit of God wants to bring healing and comfort to all of us this morning. That God is near to the brokenhearted, as the psalmist says. And the invitation is to come to him. And as God has, has invited us, my wife and I, to come to him over and over and over again, we have experienced his healing. We've experienced his hope in a tangible and profound way like never before. And the, and the, the truth is, is that we not only grieve honestly and grieve deeply, but the second kind of big idea I want to talk about is we grieve not just with honesty, but we also grieve with hope. We grieve with a deep sense of hope. You know, in, in May, on our son's birthday, when Ryler's birthday, we're still going to grieve a little bit. We'll, we'll still grieve and we'll still remember, but it's different than it was a few years ago. There's more hope now. But what, is, what does that look like? What does that look like to, to grieve with hope? Again, just a couple thoughts on this. I think the first thing that I w- would want to mention is that grieving with hope means that we celebrate God's faithfulness. Celebrating God's faithfulness in our own lives. Now, what I don't mean is that I, I do not, I am not at all thankful for the event that happened in May 2014 when we lost our son. I'm not at all thankful for death. I'm not, I don't wish that upon anyone else. I'd wish that would never happen again in this world. But what I am thankful for is God's consistent faithfulness as he has shown himself faithful to my wife and I every step of the way in that process forward. Those moments where we kind of look back on our journey and see, okay, God, you spoke to us there. You met us here. The week we had at a friend's cabin to process and get some space together. The All Sons and Daughters concert that we went to where we heard the singers kind of give their testimony. It was just fresh words that were just so life-giving to us. About a year after we lost our son, one of my best friends on the East Coast had essentially the same thing happen to him and his wife. And the opportunity to fly over there and spend a week with them and to grieve and and to process together. Those moments, we look back and say, God, you met us there. You took us a step forward there. And we celebrate God's faithfulness in the midst of that journey. You know, throughout Scripture, there's this thing called an Ebenezer stone throughout the Old Testament. These moments and spaces where God's people would raise up like a monument or a a memorial to, to say, God, you were faithful here. And we want to remember that. And I think for us today, to grieve with hope means to look back on our own lives and see, where has God been faithful in your life? Because he has. Where has God shown himself to be good and true and beautiful? He has. 
and to celebrate God for those moments and to thank God for those moments. Because as we look back and see God's faithfulness, it also helps us to look forward. To look forward, intentionally looking forward. And I say intentionally because it's really easy for me to just wallow in the past, to wallow in the pain, to just kind of play the Eeyore card and just think, okay, woe is me, and this is all that life is, and it's just horrible. But to intentionally look forward to that promised hope that we have in Jesus. That even here in the Gospel of John, in John 11, we, most of us know how this story is going to end, right? Lazarus is going to be raised from the dead. That death does not get the final word in John 11. And the same is true for your life and my life today. Death and suffering and pain do not get the last word for the, for the follower of Jesus. We have this hope where John in the Revelation talks about a day where there will be no more suffering. There will be no more tears. There will be no more pain. That God will remove all the injustice and all the evil in, in, this, in his world. And we will be in his presence forever. Death does not get the last word. And so as followers of Jesus, we intentionally can look forward to that day. We can intentionally look forward with hope when Jesus will make all things new. And we anticipate that day. We, see, here, this is where it becomes really practical. It's because we know how the story ends that we're able to grieve honestly and deeply in the present. We know how the story ends. We know how one day there will be no more suffering and death and pain. And that gives us the, 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 the lens and the view to say, you know what? When we see death and pain and suffering, we can name it for what it is in our world. But that's not how the story is going to end. That one day God will fully and finally remove that. And one day God will redeem and restore all things. So that gives us the opportunity to be honest. You know what? That death, that disappointment, that suffering, that evil, we can call it for what it is and bring it to God knowing that he seeks to redeem and restore. See, according to Paul in the New Testament, death, 1 Corinthians 15, is the last enemy to be destroyed. See, for Jesus and Paul and the writers of the New Testament, death is not like, you know, part of God's will or something, God's ultimate will. No, death is an enemy. Death is an intrusion into God's good world. And death, according to 1 Corinthians 15, is the last enemy to be destroyed. I love how one writer puts it. He says this, We, we do not ignore the realities of sadness and suffering, but we stubbornly proclaim that they do not have the last word. The kingdom is here. Good Friday ushers in Easter Sunday, and death is swallowed up by life. This is the hope that we get to live into. This is the reality that we get to live in, into. And maybe you're here this morning, and there's disappointment in your life. Maybe you're here this morning, and there's maybe even death and grief just right on your doorstep. And maybe you're tempted to think that God has abandoned you, that God has forsaken you. Maybe you think that God has just completely forgotten all about you. And you think God can't be trusted. God's not real. Any a number of those feelings might be in this room. And may I just say that the Spirit of God wants to again help you to see the beauty of who Jesus is. That he is with us. That he is for us and not against us. That nothing in all of life, neither death, nor or angels, nor rulers, nor anything present or things in the past can separate us from the love that is in Christ Jesus. 
That he wants to, to help us see, the Spirit wants to help us see who Jesus truly is in his goodness, in his faithfulness, in his work on the cross for you and for me. That he has conquered sin and death and all its friends. And that he wants to, to, to have that truth be real to you this morning. That he wants to, you to know that he loves you unconditionally. That he is for you. That he is nearer to the brokenhearted. And that we can live with hope. And so I want to invite the worship team to come up as we transition into singing. And maybe for you this morning, you know, there's, there's pain. And that pain is real. But I just want to again reiterate and say that as we sing, we sing not only with honesty, with vulnerability, but we sing with hope as well. That death and all its friends do not get the final word. Jesus and his goodness and his love and his faithfulness is what is ultimately true, what is ultimately real. So with that, I want to invite Pastor Tony up as he kind of leads us into a time of worship. So as, as Aaron was speaking, I just got the sense that, you know, we, we read this story and we think, oh yeah, Jesus, Jesus wept for Mary. And as Aaron was speaking, I just felt like the Spirit said to me, like, now Jesus, he weeps for you. As you come into this place, whatever you carry, Jesus weeps with you and he weeps for you. And I think there's an invitation this morning uh, for us to, like Mary, to get up out of our seat and walk towards Jesus. And we're going to sing songs, uh, but during this first song, I, my invitation to you is I'm gonna, we're going to have four or five people standing in the back of this room, and they're going to be standing there, and they want to pray for you. And one of the ways that we can move towards Jesus is by moving towards uh, one of Jesus' followers and saying, hey, I need, I need God to come near me. I need to sense God's presence. I'm grieving, I'm doubting, I'm suffering, I'm struggling, I need help. So we're gonna have four or five people just in the back of the room and if you feel like you could use some help, we're gonna be there and we're gonna pray. And then towards the end of service, we're gonna come back to celebrate communion. That's just another reminder of the goodness of God drawing near us. So I'm gonna pray for us and I just invite you this morning be selfish. Come and get prayer. Don't worry about people watching you as you stand up and walking back there. No one's going to judge you. This is a place where we want to encounter the person of Jesus. We want to encounter the love of God. Take the risk. Be courageous. God, in this space, we draw near to you. We are broken creatures living in an incredibly broken world. And we do pray that by your spirit, you would comfort us, that you would draw near to us, that we would know, God, that you are weeping for us, that we would know your love. Jesus, move, speak, dwell among us as we sing these songs about the living hope that you embody and you offer us.